The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. If you'll take your Bibles and find your way to John chapter 15. John 15, we're working our way through this final discourse of Jesus, the upper room discourse. It's his last conversation the night before his crucifixion. Um, We found ourselves in the middle of Thursday night when he's now made his way from the upper room and he's walking down the uh, eastern slope of the Temple Mount, probably through a grove of grapes and heading toward the bottom because in chapter 18 we know he crosses the bottom. So this is somewhere in transit. And he's teaching his disciples the final thoughts that are on his mind before he returns to the Father in heaven. John chapter 15. For our time this morning, we're going to look simply at verses 9, 10, and 11. Let me read those to put them in our mind. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. J.C. Ryle gives an account that was impossible for me to summarize. And it makes the point of what we're looking at today in such a way that I can only read it to you. He writes this. An atheist was once addressing a crowd of people in the open air. He was trying to persuade them that there was no God and no devil and no heaven and no hell and no resurrection and no judgment and no life to come. He advised them to throw away their Bibles and not to pay any attention to what preachers said. He recommended that they think as he did and be like him. He talked boldly and the crowd listened eagerly. It was the blind leading the blind, Ryle says. Both were falling into the ditch. In the middle of his address, a poor old woman suddenly pushed her way through the crowd. She stood in the place where he was standing. She stood before him and looked him full in the face. Sir, she said in a loud voice, are you happy? The atheist looked scornfully at her and gave her no answer. Sir, she said again, I ask you to answer my simple question. Are you happy? You want us to throw away our Bibles. You tell us not to believe in what the preachers say about Christ. You advise us to think as you do, and we will be like you. Now, before we take your advice, and have a right, we have the right to know what good we will gain from it. Do your fine new ideas give you a lot of comfort? Do you yourself, sir, feel happy? The atheist stopped, Ryle writes, and attempted to answer the old woman's question. He stammered and shuffled and fidgeted and endeavored to explain his meaning. He tried to return to the subject that he had begun. He said he had not come to preach about happiness. Happiness has no use. 
The old woman stuck to her point. She insisted on her question being answered, and the crowd took her side. She pressed him hard with her inquiry and would accept no excuse. And at the last, the atheist was obliged to leave and sneak off in confusion. His conscience would not let him stay. He dared not say that he was happy. The old woman showed with great wisdom, Ryle writes, in asking the question she did. The argument she used may, not, may seem very simple, but in reality, it's one of the most powerful that can be employed. It's a weapon that has more effect on some minds than the most elaborate reasoning by some of our greatest apologists. Whenever a man begins to speak against and despise old biblical Christianity, thrust home at his conscience the old woman's question. Ask him whether his new views make him feel comfortable within himself. Ask him whether he can say with honesty and sincerity that he is happy. And then Ryle concludes this. The grand test of a man's faith and religion is this. Does it make him happy? It's a great insight. What use is it of any line of thinking? What use is it of any line of worship? What use is it of any religion if happiness is not the result? I think it's fair to say that every one of us is on an unstoppable quest for happiness. I've seen lots of definitions uh, given in, in the uh, uh, biblical nomenclature, the biblical words and vocabulary that really all describe the same thing. Happiness and joy and blessedness are synonyms. So when you see blessed are, it's basically saying happy are. When you're seeing joyful is, you're basically seeing happy is. Those are synonyms. All of us are on a quest for this unstoppable momentum of our soul to find happiness, to find joy. I don't think anyone would argue with that. Does anyone wake up in the morning and say, I want to just see how miserable I can make my life today. I'm going to have every effort inclined toward making myself utterly unlivable with. Terrible English, but you understand my point. I've never met anybody, anyone whose life quest is to be unhappy, whose goal in life is to be melancholy, who just desperately longs to be sad. Well, verse 11 of our text is a remarkable promise. In order to kind of work backwards through this, let's look at verse 11. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you so that my happiness, my joy may be in you. And I've also spoken these things that your joy may be made complete or full or entirely satisfying. The promise is not just that joy may be had, but that it might be experienced in the fullest I remember when I first came to Christ, I was 16 years old. I would love to tell you that whole story sometime, but suffice it to say for now, one of the great things that the obstacles in my way from repenting and from coming to Christ was I had convinced myself that if I came to Christ, I would then give up everything that made me happy. Now, here's the catch. I had to. 
what I didn't see was all on the other side of that faith and all on the other side of that commitment that would provide a joy and a happiness that was superior to all my pursuits previously. On Wednesday nights, we've been working our way through some sections of church history. And the first we started with was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is my historical hero. Uh, It was a long trek for me to get to appreciate Jonathan Edwards. He was an old guy in the 18th century who wore a powdered wig. If you had told me when I was a teenager, one day you're going to love this guy and appreciate this guy, I would have laughed at you. In fact, I still laugh at myself about it. Edwards is remarkable. Uh, the greatest mind probably America has ever produced, the deepest thinker, the most astute theologian. This was a man who lived in the world of God consciousness and God awareness, really like no one before or since. And looking through his life, last Wednesday we came to study the, the life of his wife, a remarkable lady named Sarah Edwards. I finished that study on uh, Wednesday night and on Thursday, went in to start uh, finishing up this sermon on, uh, for, for Sunday and worked on it on Friday and on yesterday, and I could not get away from something we studied on Wednesday night. So if you were there, we're going to go back there again, and if you weren't, this will be fresh. What's going on is um, Sarah Edwards is in the midst of a crisis. She has been um, struggling primarily over the jealousy that's in her heart for her husband's ministry. Remember, during that time, there, were, there was no celebrities. The celebrities were basically the preachers and the pastors. There, were, there was no form of entertainment. The, the biggest show in town was on Sunday, and it was church. Monday morning really occupied what happened on church Sunday. That was the main headlines. Most of the headlines in that day was what the preacher in your, in your local community preached on, sometimes with a full printed sermon that he would provide. This was the time, though, that God began doing something incredible in the world. Uh, we call it the Great Awakening when we look back at it. It was during the 1730s and 40s and extending into the early part of the 1750s. Entire cities were being converted to Christ. Entire counties were turning from their sin and repenting. Whole communities, wholeheartedly together, were turning to Christ, and it turned everything upside down. In the middle of that Great Awakening, in 1742, in the middle of her own struggling with sin, Sarah Edwards had her own spiritual awakening. And it's remarkable to read her account of that because it so closely coincides with what Jesus promises here in John 15. Let me read you her account of her spiritual awakening that happened in 1742. It happened over a period of two weeks. She said this, over that two-week period, I felt more perfectly subdued and weaned from the world and more fully resigned to God than I had ever been conscious of before. I felt an entire indifference to opinions, the representations and conduct of mankind respecting me, and a perfect willingness that God should employ some other instrument than Mr. Edwards, her husband, and advancing the work of grace in Northampton. That was one of the things that she was struggling with, is why are these other preachers gaining more popularity than my faithful husband? I was entirely swallowed up in God as my only portion, and his honor was the object 
of my supreme and my deepest delight. Now just think about that. God was the object of her supreme focus and delight. At the same time, I felt a far greater love to the children of God than ever before. My soul remained in a kind of heavenly elysium. It's, it's a state of, of, of overwhelming satisfaction. So far as I am capable of making a comparison, I think that what I felt each minute during the continuance of that whole two-week period was worth more than all the outward comfort and pleasure which I had enjoyed my whole life put together before then. It was pure delight which fed and satisfied my soul. It was a, a sweetness which my soul was lost in. It seemed to be all that my feeble frame could sustain. All of that fullness of joy which is felt by those who behold the face of Christ and share his love in the heavenly world. Who writes like that today? Who thinks like that? Who describes last week like that? Now, the question we have to ask is, where did that come from? Now, this was happening as a, as a revival all, in, all up and down the eastern seaboard, but there was a remarkable common thread that all these people who had these experiences with God uh, shared, and that was that they saw their fresh awarenesses of their sin and fresh understandings of the glory of God and his holiness. It's pretty simple. Here's what I'm like. Here's what God is like. And that great gulf that's, that's, that's spanned between our sin and God's holiness, when we see it spanned by the cross, by the gospel, by the person of Christ, then all joy is turned and formed and found in him. That's what Sarah Edwards is describing here. Let me read that last sentence again. It seemed to be all that my feeble frame could sustain, all that fullness of joy which is felt by those who behold the face of Christ and share his love in the heavenly world. The question we're left with on that is, are we beholding the face of Christ to experience that kind of joy? Because that's exactly what Jesus is instructing us to do in the passage before us. Only one who has a love for God that is manifested in God's love for Christ that results in a different kind of joy and our relationship with him will really be happy. What Jesus is offering us here is happiness. He's offering us joy. He's offering us satisfaction. And it's not in the typical places that we would try to find it. We need to recalibrate our source for joy. Yes, everyone seeks joy. But what we need is a new theology of joy. Everyone has a desire for joy, but do we have a, a theology for joy? Do we have a theological parameter, some fences in which we're look, looking for joy and outside of which we won't go exploring? Yes, everyone does seek joy, but the only kind of really deeply satisfying and long-lasting joy is the, found, the one found in our passage today. The only source of our joy must be really calibrated by divine Love, that's critical. Divine love recalibrates our understanding of joy. That's what Jesus instructs us to know and have in these three verses. Now let's look closer at these three verses. Um, it's a look really at the divine love that exists 
in the Trinity in the divine love that is expressed from Christ to us. And that divine love is what sends us into that, that final revelation and understanding of the happiness and joy we want to find, we want to experience. In these three verses, we can find together three characteristics of the love that produces joy. This is important. It's love, a special kind of love, that produces the joy, the happiness we're really looking for. That first characteristic is this. It's a love that abides. This is a kind of love that abides. We've seen over and over in this chapter this this word abide. It means literally to remain in, to live in, to rest in. Verse 9 says, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Now let's back up the tape for a minute. We've been looking since the beginning of chapter 15 at Jesus' description of the vine and the branches. And the whole point of that illustration that he brings up is that there's a vine, which is Christ, a vine dresser who is God the Father, and the branches that grow off of it, which are professing believers. But not every professing believer is a real believer, and the test of true and authenticating faith is fruit. He says the, the vines that the, the branches rather that, that produce fruit, I trim them, I prune them, which is never easy and always hurts. But the ones that don't bear fruit, I cut off and I throw into the fire. As we looked at last week, there's really two expectations of everyone who knows about Christ. Either the knife or the fire. Either there's posers who have said, I've been there, I've prayed the prayer, I've signed the card, I've gone to church, I've done this, I was in junior high and went through this catechism. It's all about bearing fruit currently present tense. With no bearing of fruit, there's no authenticating understanding of faith. Those branches are cut off and thrown into the fire. But those who do bear fruit, just as you would do a, a vineyard in a, in a, in a, a grape industry, you, you, after they bear fruit, then you cut them back. And when they grow the next year, all the new growth is now concentrated in that thicker part of the branch. And it grows thicker and more strong and more productive. And it bears more fruit. It's interesting that the fruit that's described in the New Testament is, um, is plentiful. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Then he says, and things like this. That's not even a complete list. But what does that list start with? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Jesus goes right to the heart, right after he says, bear fruit, and immediately begins to speak about love. He begins in this description of love by returning to the inter-Trinitarian relationship of love. This is, we are, we are swimming in the deep end of the pool here. We're looking inside the Trinity and how the Father and the Son and the Spirit, three and one, one and three, work together and love each other. This is a blow-your-mind thought. Before there was ever a world for an eternity going backwards, there was only God. Now, now, for somehow, I can wrap my mind around eternity forward. That it'll never stop. That somehow, I, I'm okay with that. But when you think of eternity, forever back, never a beginning, 
Let me ask you a question that uh, my astute five-year-old theologian in my house once asked me at one time when he was five. He said, Dad, when before there was a world and before there were angels and before there was people and before there were waterfalls and rocks and everything that he would tend to, what did God do forever then? A great question. You know what he did? He loved, are you ready for this? Himself. He enjoyed the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit loving the Son, the Spirit loving the Father, the Son loving the Spirit, the Son loving the Father. It was all intertwined in God's overwhelming enjoyment of himself, which is why he invites us into that joy. There's no greater joy than God has within the Trinity. And when he says, I want you to have my joy, which he'll say in just two verses, my joy means come into where I am. Where do we get there? How do we get there? We start here. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. That's a, an amazing statement. How How can we even describe the love that existed between God the Father and God the Son? It existed before the world began and was affirmed in Jesus' life. Twice in John's gospel, we hear Jesus speak of this love. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In John 5.20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Jesus himself said, the Father loves the Son. God loves me. I am a part of this inner Trinitarian love relationship. Also, at two other important events in the life of the Son of God, we hear this expressed. Remember uh, um, when Jesus was baptized, Mark 1.11, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You can translate that. You are the Son I what? Love. <laughs> then at the trans- Mount of Transfiguration, I, I just... If I could replay certain scenes in the Bible, this is one I would love to have the DVD on. Remember up in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, leaves the others behind. They go up on a mountain. And the Greek is, the, the, the Greek is just incredible here. It literally says, and he peeled back his flesh and showed them his glory. It sounds like a science fiction movie. He pulls his flesh back. I don't even know what that means somehow released a tiny revelation of his full glory. And the word glory in the Greek is light, overwhelming light, brilliance. You remember Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, says, wow, this is great. By the way, Moses and Elijah show up with him at the same time. He says, wow, this is great. We should build three tents here. Just, just tabernacle here. Let's, let's make this the kingdom right here, right now. And ba- wow, it's good that I'm here too. In that moment, this is incredible. Mark 9, 7 says, then a cloud formed. I mean, you can just almost feel the humidity changing and overshadowed them. Now it becomes a fog, a dense fog. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. This is the son I love. Then what does he say? Listen 
to him. Listen to him. Obey him, which is going to come to bear in the next verse. This is my beloved son. This is the son I love. When you really understand that, then John 3.16 takes on a whole new dimension. For God so loved the world is preceded by, for God so loved the son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his most beloved, the son he loved. That's the meaning of that text. With that in mind, John 15, 9 comes into amazing focus. Now we find out that we are loved in concert with the love that exists between God the Father and God the Son. Now, here's my challenge this morning. I am somehow supposed to explain that to you. I have to admit, I, I, I can give you some, some observations that you can find, that God says I love my son, that God, God, uh, Jesus says the Father loves me. I have no idea what that means. How could I possibly get inside the Trinity and see that except for this? The love with which he loves us is analogous to that. What does that love look like? In a few hours, he's going to go to a cross and give himself up because of that love. In just a few verses, he's going to say, greater love has no man than this, than he lay his life down for his friends. The command here is to remain in, abide in, live in Christ's love. Now we have to ask a question, what does this mean? Abide in Christ's love. Does that mean you you could not do that? Does that mean you could lose your salvation? No, 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 not at all. John 10 says the Father has us in his hand, the Son has us in his hand. There's no way we're going to be snatched out of, of the Father's hand. It just meant to get to verse 11 where we want to enjoy enjoyment we have to start by understanding ever so baby step like the love of God that exists within the Godhead and then expressed to us sometimes our view of the love of God of divine love is so selfish we only think that of John 3:16 that God loved us and that's a wonderful thought but preceding that before the world began God loved himself that love is in what that love is what we're supposed to live in and abide in can i make it simple you think about the love of god in christ which we're going to see unfolding in the next two chapters in the cross in the crucifixion we're going to celebrate that friday and sunday this week when you see all that you begin thinking about that if you think about that that's the way you remain in and abide in his love there has to be an awareness of it a consciousness of it an amazement by it a, a delight in it where we see the gospel and are amazed. Maybe we can say it this way. God and the gospel are amazing. And the Christian's call is to stand amazed. It goes deeper than that. A love that abides. Secondly, it is a love that obeys. Verse 10. It is a love that obeys. There's a clear if statement here. If you do this then. If you keep my commandments... Then you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is creating a parallel illustration here, a parallel command based on the phrase, just as. So let's do the, the reverse then. When you, when you see a simile, when you see just as, often you go to the, 
the, the second simile, find out what the second part of the simile, what is that so you can get the full meaning of the comparison. Look at the second part. Just as I have kept my father's commandment and abide in his love. It's hard for us to realize and think about, but Jesus obeyed God the Father. I understand he had enough righteousness, he had enough deity in himself to have never sinned, but he connected all of his obedience to the explicit and implicit demands and commands of God the Father. Paul describes the lethal consequences of this kind of obedience. In Philippians 2, verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That that's, blows me away. It means a thing to be gloried in. If you were God, wouldn't you want people to know it? I mean, can you imagine walking through Nazareth, kids bumping into you, people making fun of you, your own brothers, as we find out, his, his half-brother James, couldn't stand to be like, well, can we really live with a perfect brother? I mean, let's think about that. And wouldn't you want to say, I made you. I'm your creator. Bow down and worship me. And he had every right to do so. And he, and he didn't. Instead, it says, but he emptied himself. Emptied himself doesn't mean he became any less than he was. It meant that he reserved, he held back the display and exercise of some of his divine attributes. He didn't show off. Taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, listen to this, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Now we're back to Christ's obedience to God. How did Christ obey? Obedient to the point of death, even even death on a cross. Notice the link, though, between Christ's... It's just incredible. This is awesome, if I can use the college term, okay? The connection between Christ's obedience and his joy, because that's what he wants to connect with us. Our obedience is going to lead us to joy. Watch this. Hebrews 12, 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Remember, this is a just as statement. We're to, we are to obey just as Christ obeyed. He obeyed because of joy. His obedience was lethal. He obeyed because there was a joy set before him. That before him was what we're going to study in John 17, where Jesus prays, the glory that I enjoy with you, that love we had, that fellowship, that unbroken unhindered fellowship I want again. Then it just throws it in as a footnote. Despising the shame and a sat down at the right hand of God. Don't ever think, well, Jesus knew it was going to be okay in the end, so it was okay for him to suffer because he knew there was a good ending to this. 
His suffering is more real than any of our suffering. His pain was harsher and more penetrating than any of ours. The connection is this. We are to obey just as Jesus obeyed. How did he obey? He obeyed with such commitment that even the threat and execution, threat of death and the execution of his own life did not deter him from obeying. And he did it because of joy. Look back at the text. If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. Let me me make it simple, okay? I've had discussions over the last few weeks with with folks that this is in full context of. It's it's been encouraging for me to discuss these uh, these texts and this issue with them. Do you ever wonder, I don't don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't feel like I'm a Christian. I don't... I don't know. I, 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 the things that I want to do, I don't do. And, and the things that I do, do, I don't want to do. And, and I just, which is exactly what Paul said. I just don't know. I feel so terrible. Look at what this text says. It's very, very clear. If you keep in my commandments, you will remain in, abide in, enjoy my love. It comes back to obedience. Remember chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. Remember John uh, 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he will be loved by my Father, and I will come and disclose myself to him. It's all on obedience. Here's the grand question of our assurance, the grand question of our abiding, the grand question of how we feel in relationship with God. Even if we're no less sons and daughters, sometimes we feel like less. What takes that away? Obedience. Obedience. You say, wow, where do I start? Uh, Acts 3.9.10, repent, therefore, and return, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Are Are you having trouble being happy? Find a sin to repent of. Find a command to obey, and you'll usher in the avenue, the stream, the on-ramp for God to flood your heart with joy because of that love. We're going to say much more about this in in the coming weeks because he comes back to this theme a couple more times. It's a love, though, that obeys. If you love me, you keep my commandments. If you're going to keep his commandments, you've got to know what they are. That means you read the Bible. Rick, are you saying that I have to read my Bible to be a Christian? No, but you have to read your Bible to have assurance. You have to read your Bible to know what's expected. And I know how some of you feel. Well, I don't always feel like reading my Bible. Can I let you in on a very dirty little pastoral secret? I don't always feel. In fact, I rarely feel like reading my Bible. It seems like when I sit down to read my Bible, all the distractions of the entirety of the world and hell itself come flooding into my mind to keep me off track from trying to read my Bible. You're not the only one who's ever struggled like this, but we all kind of feel like, well, can I really tell people that I know I should read my Bible, but I don't always feel like it? 
Do you think the enemy was going to make it easy? He's going to put a big cushy chair and a footstool and a cup of tea and nice lighting, and the devil's going to say, go ahead, read your Bible, be better, feel better. He and his minions will make every attack on you to keep you from that book. That's where you find the commandments to obey. And when you obey, that's why you, when you find yourself abiding in his love, that's when you feel assurance. There's a third characteristic. It's a love that enjoys. A love that enjoys. Now we come to the thrust. These things, verse 11, I've spoken to you so that, this is just, so that my joy, Jesus' joy, may be in you. Just stop right there. Huh? How can Jesus be talking of his joy when he's walking to the bottom of a valley to be arrested, beaten, scourged, and crucified. What joy is he talking about? That joy is built in a theological awareness that transcends the moment of suffering and sadness. It's the only thing that will bring you and me joy. Don Carson says, the joy Jesus promises is not merely some cheap glow. I love that. Some cheap glow which depends on outward circumstances. It is the profound delight of the godly person who delights in the law of God. Psalm 1-2. The sublime, sublime gladness of wholehearted obedience. Every Christian who has traveled any distance on his pilgrimage knows this to be so. His deepest joy springs from periods in his life when he obeys Christ with unreserved commitment. That's worth repeating. His deepest joys spring from periods in his life when he obeys Christ with unreserved commitment. When some difficult with uh, uh, with complex moral, with some difficult decisions, with complex moral overtone thrust itself upon us, he rejects the sinewy trails in favor of unqualified adherence to the highest path for Jesus' sake. <laughs> then he experiences joy that leaves him speechless. Come on, we all know what it's like to fail a temptation, don't we? We know what it, all know what it's like to be tempted and fail. But do you know what it's like to be tempted and obey God and afterwards enjoy that peaceful fruit of righteousness? Notice what Jesus is promising here. He says, my joy. He just promised, by the way, back in 1427, my peace. He says, there's a peace in the world, there's my peace. Now he's saying there's a joy in the world, this is my joy. So what is this joy? Let's see if we can pull it all together in a very simple definition. Christian joy is something that we should enjoy. Look at the last part of the verse. So that your joy won't be there in minuscule amounts, won't be there in tiny bits. It will be there in full, in full. What is Christian joy then? I mean, isn't life hard enough? Doesn't it have enough stresses and strains and hiccups and problems that we we find ourselves searching for the light switch to turn on any semblance of happiness. Christian joy is the glad emotion. 
It's the glad emotion springing from the settled confidence that God is in absolute control and will bring our good in time and our glory in eternity. That's what Jesus experienced. It's a complicated definition, but all those parts are important. Let me read it again. Christian joy is the glad emotion springing from the settled confidence. There's our theology. That God is in absolute control. Without God being in control, you can have no joy because you have no assurance of what's going to happen tomorrow. Christian joy is the glad emotion springing from the settled confidence that God is in absolute and complete control and will bring our good in time and his glory in eternity. We could say our glory in eternity too. You know what suffering does to us? You know what problems do for us? Is there such a sweet grace because they force us to begin letting go of the prying grip that our hands have on this world and make us long to be where there is no more sin. There's no interruptions with our fellowship with God. There's no more temptation. Now, the question I have written here in my notes is this. Do you experience that kind of joy? And let me answer it for you. Most of you would say, sometimes, right? And all of us would say, but I want to more than I do now. If you don't know Christ, you'll have seasons of happiness. Things will make you happy, but you'll never have extended happiness that will last and promise you the best after death. One a contemporary author keeps wanting you to have your best life now. I don't want my best life now. I want my best life in eternity. You can have that assurance today. You can come to Christ. You can run to Christ. After we sing in a few minutes, our prayer room over here to my left will we'll have some folks standing there who would love to talk to you and say, this is what it means to be a Christian. If you have people, things in your life you want to pray about, we would love to pray with you want to learn how to join our church or what it means to be a part of our fellowship, please come and talk to some folks over there. But for those of us who know Christ, it's capturing joy by reorienting and calibrating our theology of joy. It's his joy. What was his joy? Obedience that had the perspective of eternity. That's our joy that he wants us to have in the fullest. Our Father, we are so grateful for your instruction and yet to look inside your inner Trinitarian love is a bit more than we can swallow. And yet, we have hints of what that looked like, that it was obedience that led to joy. We want to be happy, but make us happy in you you said in Psalm 144 that happy are those whose God is you. So teach us to be those people. Reorient our theology. Put our faces in your Bible. 
to know the true and abiding truth that alone can give us what satisfies our souls, the commands we're to obey, and the sustaining joy and satisfaction of your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.